I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today on the show, I am joined by Georgia hunter and host of Realtree Road Trips, Tyler Jordan, to discuss exactly how he'd handle some of the most challenging deer hunting scenarios in the whitetail woods. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are in week three of our What Would You Do series in which we are tossing some of the best hunters in the world a series of difficult hunting scenarios, all sorts of different stuff. Some of these are the same questions I ask the guys over and over again. Sometimes these are questions more specific to their unique experiences. But the main thing we're getting at here is trying to get into the minds of these deer hunters to figure out how they tackle, how they deal with tough hunting situations, how they make their decisions, how they deal with adversity. That's the kind of stuff I want to know leading into my next hunting season. How can I get better at those things? And today, Tyler Jordan's going to help us do that. I think you probably know who Tyler Jordan is. He's the son of Bill Jordan, the founder of Realtree, the host of a whole bunch of hunting shows and films and videos over the years. And Tyler's taken the reins on Realtree road trips, doing a great job, great hunter, lots of experience. And I think one of the interesting things that Tyler brings to the table is that he hunts a whole bunch of different places across the country every year. So he's seen deer acting a certain way in the Southeast and he's seen deer act a certain way in the Midwest and he's seen it in the West and he's seen it in the South and he's been on kind of all points in between. There's not a whole lot of people who probably have been to as many different locations as Tyler has. And he's been with very, very good hunters too. He's been in hunting camps with some incredibly experienced and successful folks. So he's gotten to learn from the best of the best. 
And what I really like about Tyler is that he's willing to just give it to you straight, what he's experienced, what he knows, what he doesn't know. He's he's a human being, just like the rest of us, and he's made mistakes, he's learned from them, and he's gotten better. I think there's some cool things we can learn from him here too. So today, I'm putting him through the What Would You Do gauntlet, going to get some interesting perspective on things from the southeast, going to learn a little bit more about how he tackles these short traveling hunts. You're going to try to pick a few things from him, from someone who gets a chance to take a shots at lots of deer every single year. You know, what can you learn from somebody like that when it comes to improving your shot sequence and dealing with buck fever, all that kind of stuff. This is a good one. It was a fun one. I appreciate Tyler joining us, and uh, I think you guys will enjoy it too. Now, real quick, before we get to the main show, I want to give you a couple quick plugs. If you are not already, highly recommend you sign up for the Wired to Hunt weekly newsletter. You can do that by going over to TheMeatEater.com, sign up on the newsletter there. That's where you'll get my every Monday note in which I kind of update you on what's new in my world or what's new with Wired to Hunt, things like that. Maybe a quick tip for the week. Uh, And then as well, with that, we also then share with you the latest content from Meat Eater and Wired to Hunt's Whitetail world. So we've got all of our podcasts on there, our YouTube videos, our articles. That's where you can stay up to date on all of those things. Now, a couple other things in our world this past week. Our pals over at First Light have launched a couple new exciting things. Number one, the Sanctuary and Solitude systems. Our main outerwear systems are now fully windproof. It's something that folks have been asking for for a long time, myself included, and now we're able to do it and keep these things quiet. There's a new built-in integrated windproof membrane that makes these suckers just hum. I mean, perfect, windproof, no noise, just what you want. So that's exciting. And then number two, a new piece, a totally new jacket just launched as well called the Source Jacket. It's an idea I've had for years. I've really hoped and dreamed we would do it. I talked to the First Light designers about this almost five years ago when I first came on to Mediator. I said, I really want a super lightweight, ultra packable, silent puffy for whitetail hunting. I wanted that little tiny puff. I used to have this nano puff made by Patagonia. I loved it. It was so tiny. You could stuff it in a water bottle and take it with you if you wanted and pull it on when you need that little extra warmth. Well, First Light has gone and created that kind of thing that I've always hoped for. It's called the Source Jacket. It's very quiet. It's packable. It's lightweight, and it gives you that extra boost of insulation. If you want to throw it on as an outer layer, you can. It's DWR treated. It's got a tough outer fabric. It can handle briars and bark and stuff like that, or it works really well as an inside layer to kind of boost anything else you're wearing. So you could put it underneath your solitude system and it's basically now the equivalent of something like the sanctuary or put it on underneath your sanctuary and you're basically wearing a sleeping bag that's going to keep you warm no matter what. So highly recommend checking out the source. It was one of my favorite new pieces last year when I got to use the proto and uh, I think you guys will really dig it too. So all that stuff you can find if you go to my gear recommendations on the First Light site, that's store.themeateater.com slash mark. So just go to the meteor store slash mark and you'll find those things listed there as well as a few of the other items that I highly recommend from First Light too. So that is it. That's my plug. Appreciate you joining me. Hope you've been enjoying this series. We've been kind of trying to get a really diverse mix of folks. We've had like land manager with Grant Woods. We had like the public land DIY do with Eddie Claypool. 
Now we've got Tyler who's done some more private land, some lease, some outfitted stuff, been all over the country and had those unique experiences. And then next week, we've got another door pounder, DIY hunter, who I think you guys will really get a kick out of as well. So I'm hoping we're all going to learn something from these very different deer hunters that are all successful in their own ways. I dig it. That's the way I like to learn. I hope you do too. Let's get to the show. All right, here with me now on the podcast, we've got Tyler Jordan. Tyler, thank you so much for making time to do this. Mark, thanks for having me on. Deer season's fast approaching, and uh, I know like everybody probably listening right now, I'm starting to get the edge a little bit. Yeah, I am uh, I am right there with you. And so I think, you know, like I was telling you a second ago, this format of episode we're going to do is one of the best ways I know to scratch that itch leading into season because we're, we're going to kind of spitball on a whole bunch of scenarios that we might find ourselves in here in a, in a matter of weeks. So I think it should be fun. Sounds good. So Tyler, I've got what I call the, what would you do gauntlet planned for it today? Basically what that means is I'm going to present you with a bunch of hypothetical hunting scenarios. Some of them are kind of fun to imagine. Some of them are real doozies to imagine. It's going to take you to a dark place and you're not going to like me anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, you know, I think by walking through these and kind of thinking through like how you'd approach it, I think we'll get to learn and get an interesting look into kind of how you approach deer hunting. And, and what I love about what I've been doing with this podcast over the years, I guess, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing is that there are just a million different ways to skin a cat when it comes to deer hunting. Right. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen, there'll be like one guy who's a great deer hunter who will say, well, you got to do it this way in November and you got to sit this place and this place. And then in December, you have to do this. And then you'll meet some other person who's really, really good too. And they might tell you the exact opposite thing, right? I mean, it's, that's right. Have you seen what I've seen as far as just this crazy array of different approaches to this deer hunting? Yes. And I, and I think there's, you know, there's not just a simple blanket answer for everything. And I think, uh, you know, you'd probably agree a lot of that has to do just based off your location of where you're hunting. Yeah. You know, how I approach deer hunting in Georgia versus how I might approach a late season deer hunt in Nebraska, Montana, uh, Kansas is going to be a whole lot different. Um, so it's just not as simple as saying, here's what everybody should do this time of year. Uh, you know, your food sources and, uh, you know, what stage of the rut, you know, uh, certain states may be in. I mean, that's going to determine a lot of your approach um, and how you attack uh, every situation. Yeah. So, you know, you're hosting real tree road trips and I think you, you probably could speak to this better than anyone, but I've always kind of said that if you want to up your deer hunting game, the simplest, fastest way you could do it is to start traveling to deer hunt and hunt new places. Cause it just forces you to relearn so many things to, to do what you just said, which is learn all these different regional things it just takes you out of your comfort zone. Would you agree with that? I mean, has that been the case for you traveling, going on all these road trips all over the country? Yes. Yes, it, it, it definitely has. You know, how I, I deer hunt here, uh, the start of the season is completely different than how I hunt in Nebraska, which is where I've been for the last three or four years hunting. Um, and so learning, you know, different deer's habits, uh, you know, in the Midwest versus the Southeast, um, you know, it's, it's a completely different style and a totally different approach. You know, how you scout is completely different. You know, we're in Georgia, we rely a lot on trail cameras, uh, you know, food plots, you know, that we've planted versus when I, you know, start up in Nebraska early season, 
you know, we're doing a lot of glassing. That's how we find a majority of our deer. Um, and then we kind of make a game plan and go from there, uh, with hanging stands and, um, you know, getting ready for the season. So, you know, definitely if you really want to increase your knowledge and, you know, or, or even find out how much of a dummy you might be too, you know, is going <laughs> yeah. to some of these places, you know, you think you know a lot about your deer, uh, you know, but you really get tested when you go and try other places. But to me, it's just, it's fun. Um, yeah. that's, that to me is what is, is most fun about hunting is every season, uh, visiting these different States, you learn a little bit of something different, uh, that you didn't know before. So, uh, you know, that's, that's really the joy that I get in, in doing this every year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. So you mentioned how, you know, you approach things differently down in Georgia and it, that kind of ties in perfectly the first scenario I wanted to run by. So let's just jump right into this. Okay. And I think this is something that this scenario I'm going to paint for you is something that you l- basically lived, I think, last year to a degree. So you probably have some firsthand experience to, to share here. But but here's the situation. Let's say it's late July and a world-class buck shows on trail camera on your home farm. And yep. it's, it's a situation that's like there's no other buck you want. Like, he's the one. He's the only one. And it's it's a maybe a once in a, I don't know, decade opportunity or maybe more, you know. Right. What would you do just in the month of August? Let's say all you have is the weekends in August to get some work done, to get whatever final preparations you need to get done, whether that be habitat work or stand prep or scouting or anything. What are the most important things you could do during those three, four weekends in August leading into this season, trying to kill that one special buck? What would you do in that situation? Well, well, Mark, I feel like, I don't know, you know, for, for people that ha- have seen it, uh, the biggest deer I took was actually last year. And it was actually the exact same scenario that you just laid out. Yeah. Um, I shot my biggest, my biggest, uh, deer with a bow, biggest deer that we've taken in Georgia, uh, grossed 189. And when we started getting those picture pictures late in July and August, um, it was all of, you know, how do we not mess this up? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he was on camera very consistently. Um, you know, in, in, in Georgia and just like other places too, I mean, you don't know how long they're going to stay on that pattern. So, you know, that really those first few days of the season are going to be very, very crucial, um, you know, to really make sure everything is done right. And so, you know, we had two cameras out, um, multiple stands, uh, put out as well for different winds situations. Um, you know, in those weekends in August, we did a lot of, you know, prep and just, you know, trimming limbs uh, with those stands. We had two ladder stands up. Uh, the first, first, uh, the first couple sits were you know not successful. We we uh, blew some deer out of there, but um, you know that, that that and that's a problem too. Here is just you have a lot of light and variable winds early season. Uh, you know, here in Georgia, so you know just trying to to play that wind. Um, and, and having stand, you know, stand locations already done before the season gets here, you know, that, that to me is the most crucial and just making sure you have shooting lanes uh, as well. Just that, that extra trimming that you can do during the summer makes all the difference. And, you know, for us, we film a lot of our hunts too. So making sure that the, the other guy in the tree, um, you know, has, uh, has lanes to see through, um, is, is very crucial. Yeah. How did you drill down to, you know, exactly where you thought you're going to kill this buck? Was it just 
like you, he showed up on one of your cameras and he kept showing there. And so you just knew, well, this is the spot. Or did you have to, you know, cast a wider net with cameras to kind of figure out where he was the most? Like, how did you zero in? Yes. So he was, he was first coming, uh, to this, to this field we had planted in clover and chicory. Uh, that was where we first got the, the first couple of weeks of pictures of him. Um, and then, you know, as it started getting closer to the season, the deer was getting less and less frequent on this, on this camera. And so, you know, we, we decided that, um, that we were going to try a couple different cameras and, uh, putting them out kind of where these, where we assumed some of these deer were bedding and, you know, we're going up the hill near the bedding location, uh, you know, but not getting too close, trying to still keep some distance between, you know, where the deer were bedding and where the cameras were. Uh, and then, you know, lo and behold, you know, he started getting on a very regular pattern and we didn't, and I think the, uh, another key for that deer in particular was just not going in there too much. You know, you said using the weekends, you know, we tried to make sure there was enough feed down because you can legally bait here in Georgia, uh, from where the deer was being seen. Um, and, you know, trying to make, make it a minimum of every five to six days before we, you know, made it another appearance, um, in the woods where this deer was, uh, was coming to. So, um, not going in there too much, you know, finding, getting somewhere a little bit off the beaten path, um, you know, was, was critical and kind of determining and, you know, and a, a deer like this, I mean, it, it just kind of flipped his switch, um, uh, you know, just moving up there and trying something different. He started getting on a pattern just regular every day, just felt very comfortable. And I think that's just because the woods that time of year are so thick. He felt safe in there. Um, you know, for anybody that's seen the the episode, you can tell you can't see really past 40 or 50 yards, you know, where my ladder stand was hung. So, um, you know, it just felt like a really safe spot to him. Yeah. So here's another scenario that I think it ties very closely to what actually happened with that deer. But it's also a thing like I've encountered a number of times over the years and I always debate it. So the situation is this. You're getting daylight trail cameras, trail cam pictures of the buck you're after, just like you were in those right. days leading up to the opener. The problem is opening day is now, you know, let's say it's tomorrow in the forecast and you can see what opening day looks like. And you can see what the next one, two, three days after that looks like. And you've got horrible conditions. It's hot. Maybe <laughs> yeah. the wind's kind of subpar. And you're sitting here thinking, at least, you know, for me in Michigan, when I'm hunting, looking at opening day. I know that first day is is such a great opportunity because I haven't been hunted. And the next day might be pretty good. But those first two days, so many of the people in the area start hunting too, that usually my daylight activity peters out pretty quick. So I know those first few days are right. usually a great, great chance. So the question is this. Do you hunt opening day regardless of the bad conditions because it's it's still opening day and it's still like a great right. opportunity? Or do you stay out? Cause you don't want to mess things up on those poor conditions and just hope that they'll stick around and stay daylight despite the possibility of neighboring pressure. What would you do in that situation? So I'll, I'll, I'll answer this, but I didn't end up taking my own advice. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on this deer, it, it was exactly that scenario. Um, you know, we, we did, you know, have some neighbors, I'm sure they were getting pictures of this deer. Uh, you know, I even had somebody, late season the year before have pictures of this buck. So I knew he was a roamer, um, you know, but that opening day, the wind was not good. You know, we have a lot of predominant East wind here early season in Georgia, which is honestly for any of our stands and, you know, the way our land kind of lays out, it's, it's not a good wind to, to go and sit, but 
I ended up, you know, going to try it because the deer was just that regular. And I was so worried that once he got off that summer pattern, uh, that maybe we'd never see him again because the year before, uh, the last picture we had of this deer was September 29th. And then we never saw him for the rest of the season on our property. Oh, wow. Um, so I was a little concerned that, you know, our, our time was kind of, it was very critical, you know, in order, order to get it done, uh, you know, we needed, we needed, it needed to happen pretty quick. So I went in there that first afternoon, um, you know, we had some deer blow and, and get out of there. And so I, I said, look, I'm not going back in there until the conditions are, are just right. Uh, I think the, the opener last year was on September 12th and I waited another, I think 11 days until I got back in there when we had a, uh, we finally got a North wind. And the deer, I think it took the deer, you know, when we had some of those deer blow in there, it took some of those deer another four or five days just to get regular and comfortable again. Um, kind of going back to that same strategy that we had in August of, you know, not going in there, but every, you know, five to six days and, and just trying to leave it alone. Um, you know, so I had to wait another 11 days, which was really painful. But I think after seeing that happen on opening day, even though, like you said, it is you know, the, the best chance to, to possibly get it done. And you just see that deer coming in, you know, morning and, and evening, um, and the daylight, it's tough to, it's tough to resist. Um, so, but but I can, but I can honestly say, I wish, and I, I I think, I you know, with some of the wind here, it can be so, it doesn't blow just hard one direction. So I was like, man, you know, no matter what, you know, am I going to get a strong enough wind? um, for it to even really matter anyway. But, um, in that, in that situation, if I had just waited until the time it was just right, maybe it could have played out even better. Um, so, you know, it's really tough to say, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think I wouldn't do it again, but you just never know. Like if it, if it wasn't just the, the right situation there on September 23rd, um, I'm not sure if I would have had that opportunity, yeah. um, at that day or so. But I, I think, I, you know, going forward, I'd like to maybe leave it, leave it alone as much as possible. Yeah. Until it, it's just right. It seems like that's that's usually the safer bet. And, and I always I've been the same camp as you where, where I've always said that, like in my head, I'll always be like, oh, yeah, you should you should wait out. You should be careful. But every time opening night comes through, somehow I'm, I convinced myself oh, you still got to be out there except for one time. So one time, Tyler, I convinced myself that, no, you're not going to hunt opening night. It's too warm. It's just not great. And tomorrow, the second day of the season, a cold front hit. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to do the smart thing. I won't hunt the first night because tomorrow will be so good. But what I did is I sat on a hill like 300 yards away and was going to glass the area. I thought I'd do a little extra scouting. And of course, <laughs> I saw my target buck walk 20 yards away from the tree stand I would have hunted on opening night. So the one oh, time, man. the one time I did the thing you're supposed Gosh. to do, it didn't work out. <laughs> but man, and, uh, and that's just the thing. It's just it's just so tough. I you mean, just never I, know. You know, you know, you just never know. And like I was doing the same thing. You know, the night before the season, I was like, "What do I do?" And then I looked at the forecast for the next ten days, and we had predominantly east wind the whole time, east southeast, which is the worst wind you could have. So I said, you know, if, if I'm going to try it, maybe go ahead and, and try it early. And then hopefully I can, you know, recover if it, if yeah. things don't go according to plan, you know, maybe I can give it some time and in that area will, you know, the, uh, just not put any pressure in there for a while until things are just right. And so, you know, luckily it, it worked out and that deer, um, 
I think it took us four days to have that deer show back up on camera. And, you know, and he, that's a deer that was regular every single day from the end of July until the start of the season. So, um, uh, luckily that he, he felt comfortable enough to come back, but you know, sometimes they don't, yeah. and that's just, uh, the risk you take. Yeah. Keeps us coming back again. Right. Keep, keeps us coming back. You know, it's not always easy too. That's yeah. just, uh, that's part of the game you play. Yeah. All right. Here's another one. Let's, let's imagine that unfortunately for you, you lose access to this Nebraska spot you've been hunting recently, uh, but you still want to go out to that region. Let's say, you know, it could be Nebraska or one of these, you know, Western Great Plains states or Midwest, you know, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, something like that. And you decide that since you don't have your old spot, you're going to take up a buddy who had a long time ago said, Hey, you could come hunt my family property anytime. So you said, okay, I'm in a pinch. I'm going to go hunt my friend's property. You've never been there before though. So you're going to show up day one. It's, you know, the season is open. It's mid September, let's say, and you're showing up to see this place for the very first time. You, you weren't able to get there in the summer to scout or anything. So you, you have no knowledge. All you know is that your buddy has said, Hey, this is, these are the property lines. You've got free reign. There's deer here. What would you do on day one of this hunt? Would you start hunting right away? Would you scout? Would you hang cameras? What does that first day look like on this brand new place? Yeah, I think the first day I'm going to ask is where's the food? Um, you know, that's kind of whenever I hunt out in that part of the country is, you know, where, where's the food at? Um, another thing I might do, and, and this is, uh, proven to be successful for us out there in, in that part of the country, but is to find, you know, whatever trees that are available on some of these, uh, maybe deer trails and just seeing, you know, some of the, some of the routes these deer are taking, you know, to and from, uh, you know, if it's alfalfa that time of year, I know that's, you know, really popular for us in our region of Nebraska and Montana. Um, but you know, those would be my, my number, that'd be my one and two things is where's the food. Um, and where can I get a trail camera at? It may not tell you the full picture. And then, uh, you know, especially in Montana and, and is this exact same way as, is there anywhere I can get a vantage point where I can get and go glass from, you know, glassing, uh, a lot of these places in Nebraska and in the milk river where I have a lot of, uh, I've spent a lot of time over the years can really tell you a lot more so than even a trail camera can. Um, so if there's anywhere that I can get and sit far enough off that where I don't disturb anything or, or mess it up, um, you know, and then maybe after a day or two of doing that, then maybe you start, you know, game planning, um, on maybe some where to hang a stand. And, um, you know, that could be another option too, is, you know, sometimes, um, you know, when I first started hunting this, this region of Nebraska was getting in a tree stand where, you're close, but you're not close enough to where you're going to go in there and maybe mess it up. I didn't really expect to go in there and be successful, but it did tell me a lot about the deer's habits. Um, you know, maybe what trails and routes they were taking to the alfalfa, uh, in the evening. So, um, you know, that time of year, it's, it's really tough to hunt in the mornings, at least where I'm at. Um, so I would definitely, you know, stay off that and, and hunt primarily in the evenings. Um, just a little bit of a safer bed if you're going to be there for a while. Yeah. So, so glassing, you know, that first morning sounds like, but you mentioned wanting to, you know, find those trails and the trees that they're passing through, possibly putting those cameras up. Is that something you'd be, 
you know, cruising around midday that first day doing that? And would you be on foot to scout? Would you drive in a truck? Would you take a bike or a four wheeler or something? Like, how would you, what would be this, the way you'd want to do that kind of preliminary day one scouting? How would you do that usually? Yeah. So I know what I've done in the, in, in the past is we have these, these bikes that we take just an electric bike and um, I have a little cart that I can, you know, put my cameras on and, and uh, you know, not try to ride anything that's going to be too loud. And, you know, those bikes are pretty stealthy. Um, so, you know, using that to, to try and go and find as many places, or if you find a, a water hole or, um, you know, different, different trails, um, you know, the only problem is, is like, there's just sometimes not a ton of trees. Like, you know, sometimes you got to get a little creative and maybe, maybe even find like a, a stick or, you know, something you can stick in the ground and tie a camera onto, um, you know, to see, you know, where some of these deer may be coming. I've had to do that many times. Um, um, so, you know, that, that first day is, is, uh, that's, I'd, I'd be doing a lot of that, just trying to get around there as quietly as possible. And, you know, um, doing that mostly, you know, during the middle of the day, you know, not first thing in the morning, I'd say, you know, early season, anywhere between, you know, 10 and maybe one or two o'clock, you know, that'd be the time to go scouting glass. Yeah. What, uh, what's the bike you're using these days? I'm actually finally, I finally decided I'd need to get me one of these. So I'm trying to get some Intel from folks to see what they like the most. What's, uh, what's your take on that? So we're, we're actually sponsored by Baku bikes. Okay. And so Baku, I mean, they, they've been great too. And, um, you know, even for the Georgia deer, uh, you know, I don't like riding anything just too loud. And it, it's it's crazy that, uh, you know, you're able to cover as much ground. And, you know, I mean, we and even turkey hunting, too, we run those things all day long. Um, you know, I, I, I have the Mule Elite electric bike from Baku and um, you're able to cover a lot of ground in those. And, you know, it, and you really feel like you're it's probably the safest way to go undetected. Um, at least for me, I've, I've, I found a, I found that better than, you know, leaving my scent, you know, by walking and yeah. doing it that way. I just, I feel like, you know, the safer you can be, the better. Yeah. They, they just seem to be so much more forgiving of wheeled access too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's been nice to have. Yeah. I bet. So my, Next question is this same scenario, same exact scenario, same exact question, except let's change the date from mid September to now November. Would, would your day one be different now that you're showing up brand new on this place in November? Anything different? Yeah, I would say, you know, probably, probably something different. Um, definitely bring a grunt call and rattling horns. Um, you know, and maybe some of those places that you did have a tree stand hung, if you were just trying to go get inventory um, and we're talking about bow hunting, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I would say, uh, you know, definitely, definitely get somewhere where you can get maybe even a little bit closer to the action, uh, you know, just in case. And, you know, a grunt call that time of year has been proven deadly. Um, you know, so rattling horns, we rattle up so many deer, um, even that first second week in November, um, it can it can just be starting to to get really good. And you know, another thing we've been doing too, and is uh, those Dave Smith decoys. 
they've been they've been great to have. Um, I'm not afraid. You know, maybe in Georgia I wouldn't be wouldn't be uh, maybe willing to do that or as lucky. Um, you know, but I've I've had several successful hunts and you know different people we've bought out there over the years. Um, you know, that's that's been a good strategy as well. I mean, there's if there's a, a dominant buck in in the alfalfa field or uh, if he can see it, you know, I've had some of them see that decoy and come in from 200 plus yards um, just to come knock that thing over. <laughs> that's so awesome to see. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It really is fun. You know, we don't we don't get a whole lot of that, you know, down here. I don't, I don't really know what it is, but the bucks, at least on our property here in Georgia, are just not quite as aggressive, maybe toward a decoy. Or they're maybe a little bit more weary, um, you know, of just succumbing to that. So. Uh, but it's something when you get up there and, and it works, it's pretty fun sight. Even, yeah. even if you have a, you know, work on deer that are not quote unquote shooters, um, you know, it's, it's been proven to be a successful tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Enter- entertaining if nothing else. That's uh, that makes for good video. Content. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy 
on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. So here, here's a very different scenario to consider. Let's okay. say you have a shared property with a group of hunting buddies. I don't know if it's yep. uh, maybe, well, let's just say it's like you all share it. So maybe it's a lease or it's a place you all got permission together or it's a friend's. You've all pitched in throughout the year, you know, to do some prep on the farm. You maybe you guys did a little bit of habitat work. You, you all met up and put up cameras in the summer, hung trail tree stands, whatever. Now it's the night before your hunt begins and you're sitting in the kitchen and you're having that last beer of the night or something like that. And one guy says, all right, well, where are we going to sit? So my question for you, Tyler, is how do you recommend when hunting with a group of friends, how do you recommend fairly determining how stand sites are picked? Like who gets to pick where they want, how they, you know, how do you divvy that up? That just seems like one of those things that can be a challenge sometimes because maybe everybody wants to hunt the one really great funnel. How do you do that in a fair, equitable way and share a place? Dane, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I've always been, uh, this is not really going to answer your question, but you know, I, and, and yes, I've, I've been fortunate, you know, to go and, and, and do a lot of really cool hunts and different experiences. But, um, you know, what, what we try to, what I try to do is just maybe pick a name out of a hat or something. I mean, as, as silly as that may sound, yeah. you know, especially between, uh, you know, the different people that hunt on the farm, uh, you know, a lot of people want to go to one place. And there's really just no fair way to do it. You know, you may have that buddy though that's maybe put in more works up more work than the others, and we've definitely had have had that too. Um, you know, I'd say they get the first right of refusal yeah. on on maybe some of that. But um, you know, there's there's a there's not a whole lot of ways to to fairly do that without maybe getting somebody upset. But I'd say for the people that are that are there that have some sweat equity um, and some of the prep work that goes on. I would, I say should receive, uh, receive first, right. Cause you know, as far as like a hunt club or if you have a piece of land, you're hunting with your buddies, there's always going to be those people that maybe put in a little bit more work than the others. Um, so yeah. that, 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 that would, that would be maybe my best guess on what to do. And then, you know, you may have different, um, sections of the hunt club that it's, you know, section off for each individual, you know, maybe you, have pieces of that property where, you know, that, that's, that's the theirs. Yeah. How, what I, don't, kind of, I don't know an easy way to do that. No, there's not. Um, what are some, I mean, is that, is like the random name picking out of a hat, what you've seen on a lot of your hunts? Cause I feel like you've been on so many hunts over the years where there's like, there's always a big crew. There's a crew of you guys all out there hunting this farm or this place and you're all hunting different areas. I always wonder like, how do they, settle on who's going to hunt where um is it something like that you guys usually do or is it sometimes like waddell is just going to call it and you guys just live with it (laughs) (laughs) how's it go you know i mean uh 
you know, I, I know I keep mentioning Nebraska, but that's somewhere where we've had big camps and the Milk River's kind of been the same way. You know, if, if somebody were to say, you know, get maybe eyes on a deer and say, man, I really like that deer. So, I mean, you want to go hunt that deer? Well, I mean, we'll feel free. You know, we'll, yeah. we'll try to go help you hang a stand or, um, you know, help you get something set up. And, um, you know, that I guess if that person wants to call dibs, that's that's completely fine. You know, I don't get too territorial on any of these deer. And I think a lot of people in our group are the same way. Um, you know, I, I just want everybody to have a good time. Um, so that's, that's something that I've, I've kind of preached is just, you know, if, uh, if somebody has a particular area or if they went and glassed a spot that they really like and they call dibs on it first, then by all means go for it. Um, so that's kind of how we go about it. You know, we don't really designate somebody just to one particular spot. We kind of, you know, like the the good thing about Nebraska, where we go, we're going to have three or four days to go out there and, and glass and scout and hang stands before. And, um, you know, if there's somebody that says, man, I love this particular area then that's yours, if you want it, that's yours. So, um, that's kind of how we go about doing it out there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good to, it, it, this comes back to a decision prior to the hunt itself, which is when choosing who your hunting buddies are. And I think it's important to choose the right group and be, you know, have the right relationships so that you're in a situation where that kind of thing works and you guys are rooting for each other. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not controversial or combative and people are pissed at each other for taking this spot or that spot. I mean, that that's a yeah. recipe for disaster. Yeah. We all pull for each other. You know, we all, we all pull for each other, man. It, it's a, uh, you know, a big deer for whatever reason. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I have a pretty good perspective on it. It can ruin a relationship. It can ruin a friendship, but you know, that's just not how our group rolls. Um, you know, the people we have in camp, you know, we're there for the experience, the hunt, um, you know, trying to get close to these whitetails is a challenge enough in itself. Um, you know, so, it, you know, we don't, we try not to let greed, you know, play a factor in it. Um, and just, you know, do it for the, do it for the right reasons. But, you know, for that, that is a, that does play out in some cases, but we've been lucky yeah, for the most part. Yeah, that's good. All right. Here's another one for it, Tyler. You are sitting in the tree and you get into the last hour of daylight of an evening hunt. You hear the crunch, crunch, crunch. You look off in the distance and you see a picket fence coming your way. And you yeah. very quickly realize that this is a buck that will make your Georgia buck look like a chump. You re- <laughs> you realize this is the biggest buck you will probably ever see in your life. He's well yeah. over 200 inches. He's got, I don't know, double drop tines. I mean, he's a dream deer. Yeah. And he's headed your way. And you're realizing, oh, wow, I'm going to get a shot at this buck. What do you do in the following seconds or minutes to collect yourself, calm yourself, mentally prepare yourself to get this shot. What, you know, what's, what's inside in in between your ears, Tyler, because I think one thing that one thing that stands out about you compared to a whole lot of folks, I think is that you have, you're in a position every year to see a whole lot of big deer and to shoot a lot of deer every year. So you, you've, you've gone through this way more times than I have. I'm sure. What is your secret sauce to to being able to execute in that moment? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, I, what, what I've tried to do is that once I get eyes on a deer like that, maybe a deer that I don't 
don't don't know um even if it's a deer i do know i I just try to go to another place this is going to sound silly to some people but i found that the best way to calm myself down is to not really look at that deer again not look at his rack again um you know obviously you know prep for the shot um and, and hopefully i've done some of that work you know, before the deer is coming in there of knowing, you know, where I'd like to shoot this deer. I have all my spots ranged in advance, but I try to just not think about anything that's going on in the moment. Um, you know, trying to just get my mind as far away from that as possible, because I think if I think where people can mess up is, you know, if that starts going through my mind, like, man, this could be the biggest deer of my life. Uh, you know, don't want to mess this moment up. Um, you know, maybe it's, like a, a, a baseball player, you know, going to the plate, you know, you, you, you go up there and just execute um, and just, you know, thinking about as little as possible. Um, you know, you don't want that added pressure of trying to execute that shot. Um, you know, you practice, you know, you, you've, you're ready for this moment. So, um, you know, I, I try to, I try to let my mind go elsewhere, you know, where elsewhere it is. I don't know. It can, it can range from, a lot of different things, you know, work I have to do at the house or, uh, you know, thinking about an email I need to respond to or something. I mean, just trying to do as, as much as I can not to let the moment get the better of me. I like that. Now, what about, you know, is there any, like your shot process itself? Like now that buck's getting into range, I'm curious, what does your, do you have like a mantra? Do you have anything you say in your head as you're drawing back or as you aim or, or anything to try to stay in that, to stay in that moment? Or do you prefer to stay out of the moment completely and kind of be on autopilot? Yeah, I think what I, I think what I try to do there and is to be really confident, not overconfident, but I, I kind of tell like something I always, uh, tell myself is man you're going to smoke this deer like you're going you're going to make a great shot mm-hmm. uh you know when, when you draw back and you know you're on a, a deer of any size or caliber you know it, you can get shaky a little nervous but I, I try to let you know tell myself over and over like man you're gonna put it behind his shoulder and and drill this deer um you know just make a make a great shot and i, I found that when i go in there with that mentality instead of being nervous or you know, just want to keep the buck fever as far away as possible and keeping that, um, that kind of don't give a crap attitude of, you know, letting, you know, letting the moment, uh, overtake me. Um, and just, you know, going in there kind of with a force is, is kind of what I found to, to work for me at least. Yeah. And then, and then let the buck fever creep in after the shot is executed, hopefully. Yeah. That's the right time to feel it. <laughs> yeah. Now, now here's here's the doozy. Let's let's imagine the situation happens. It's November, we'll say, but you miss him. Yeah. What do you do after a miss on a November hunt like that? Are you are you the type who can just stick it out and stay out there and just like the best way to get this off your back is to shoot another one today, or do you you know pull out, go back to camp, shoot your bow, build your confidence back up again? Um, what do you? physically doing and then what are you mentally doing to to get your head right again after something like that yeah um that's a great question um you know i think after a miss you know going back and and figuring out what exactly happened um but what i like to do is is to go back to camp you know and i'm i'm fine sitting it out you know for the rest of the hunt 
and not letting that get me down too much because misses just happen. Bow hunting is really hard. Uh, you know, so going back and trying to get, you know, 10 to 15 shots, making sure my equipment's on, um, and just getting my confidence back that way, um, it has, it is probably the best thing, you know, for me to do, um, you know, rep, you can't beat repetition. Um, you know, it's like, you know, fall, falling off a bike, getting back on, um, you just got to get back out there and do it. You know, so everybody, you know, a baseball player, you strike out, but you're next at bat, you know, you got to go out there and make it count again. Um, so I, I try not to let it get, get me down too much. I think when I was younger, I, I did a little bit. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel good to have a swing and a miss, but you know, if you do this thing long enough, reality is it just happens. You just got to keep, keep positive and keep moving on. Yeah. So true. We've all been there. Too many times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's, let's step back from the shooting and, and get back to another, uh, hunt thing. And let's say okay. this is like a, like a late October hunt and you're back in the Southeast. Maybe this is a home farm, Georgia hunt. Maybe this is somewhere else you guys are poking around down there in the Southeast, but let's call this kind of yep. mixed timber and ag kind of diverse habitat and a small cold front pushes through the day before. Mm. So let's say, I don't know, let's, let's say it's cold front coming through on October 26th and you're thinking about right. hunting the next day and that cold yep. front pushes through and you get your first daylight trail camera picture of a mature buck in this area. It's yep. about 20 minutes before dark on like a small food source, like a little hidey hole food plotter corner of a field, something like that. Okay. Because okay. the first time he's been daylight this season. Now, in most situations, at least for myself, I'd be very excited about that, and I'd be thinking about getting right back in there that next night. But here's the thing. The wind is going to shift 180 degrees the next day. Let's say it was a west wind when that cold front yeah. hit and he showed up. Tomorrow, everything's the same, but the wind is a complete shift, and now it's an east wind. Yeah. Do you hunt that spot the next evening, given that he was daylight, or does that shift in wind direction worry you enough to, to not do that and instead do something different? Yeah. If, if the wind was bad, I'd likely go in there and do something different. Um, especially if, you know, where he was on trail camera is going to be, you know, dead down wind then, you know, I'd like to try and do something else. I think, um, I, I still wouldn't be afraid to go in there. Uh, hopefully I have another stand, uh, set up. And if I don't, you know, wouldn't be afraid to go in there sometime, uh, you know, maybe during the middle of the day and get up another, another stand. Um, you know, I, for, for me, anywhere between that October 24th till about November 6th or 7th, I'm trying to be in a tree as much as possible. And like you said, he's daylight for the first time. Um, so, and also not afraid to go in there and do a hanging hunt, you know, for the right wind. Um, that's on, that's, that's, uh, that's close to that deer. Um, you know, this, this, if there's a, this probably wouldn't, work for that scenario but if you know if you had a a ground blind where you could go in there and uh you know enclose your scent in for bow or gun um you know something that's hard shell um you know we use that a lot here um just because you know the wind can be screwy a lot so you know if there's a situation like that where i can use a ground blind uh, to my advantage I'll, I'll i'll do that as well Okay. So that brings to mind another scenario that I was going to run by you. And it's something I've encountered, uh, specifically there's one spot that 
really kills me that's like this, and I've seen similar in other places in the Midwest. Um, it's a little bit similar to what we just discussed, but here's here's the situation. We're we're in November now. You're somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. And you discover just uh an absolute sweet spot. It's deep in the cover, but you can tell like this is the spot within the spot within the spot. There's a little creek crossing with bedding all around, and from afar, you have seen numerous shooter bucks all cross right here. They all come through this bedding area. They all cross right here. It's it's the spot. The right. problem is that it's a very high deer density area, and there's just deer all around it. And as you sit there on the outside looking in, you're thinking, man, how could I ever hunt right inside there where all these deer cross by without these 40 does that are always coming in and out of here, winding me and blowing the whole thing. Right. What do you do in that situation? Do you hunt down right in that spot, knowing there's the risk and just hoping that you can pull it off? I've heard you say spray and pray in the past. So would you spray and pray in a (laughs) situation like that? Or would you say Uh, it's just too risky and you got to hunt off of that somewhere else? No, I would, I would, you know, I do spray and pray some, but you know, if, if the density is that high, you know, with deer in a particular area, uh, I don't know if there's, you know, the amount of the amount of scent cover in the world um, that could cover up your scent good enough. So, you know, no, I would I would try to hunt off of there a little bit. Um, you know, if they are going to a spot in the field where I can get a stand uh, hung close to that area and just give myself a little bit of breathing room, especially to start off. You know, not saying I wouldn't go in there and try that situation maybe later on or. Um, if I didn't have a whole lot of time in the hunt, but I would say right off the bat, uh, to get right on top of them and, and risk blowing the whole thing would probably play it safe. Go back to the playing safe, uh, mentality yeah. that I should have listened to a year ago. <laughs> so that's, that's probably where I, what I do in that situation yeah. is to start off. Yeah. Uh, so in my example where I had something like this, I had, uh, I had an area like this I knew about. I finally had access that I could hunt deep in there finally. And, and I kind of had the same thought you did. I was, I was worried to go in there too soon. So I, I kept trying to play the edges and hope I can make it happen. And, and finally got, got towards the end of the time I had left. And I finally thought, man, I just have to throw caution to the wind. I'm going to get one chance. I'm just going to try it. I'm going to swing for the fences. And so I snuck in here. I, I, I walked the creek all the way into this bedding area, deep in there, well before daylight. It was like November 5th or 6th or something like that. And I hang a new set in this tree right in the edge of the creek. And I, I picked a day where the wind actually blew down along with the creek. So I thought that was my yeah. best chance. If, if there was anything that might let me get away with something, it'd be if my wind was in the water. Right. And I took my shot, right? And sure enough, my shooter buck I've been after comes through. But he comes through like 10 minutes before daylight, and I have to watch him go past me in the dark, but I can see him, and then go downwind of me and win me oh, and God. spook out of there. So I could have shot him if it was like 15 minutes later. He did exactly right. what I needed to, but he just exactly. came too early. So yeah, it was a yeah. doozy. <laughs> that, yeah, that unfortunately can happen. I, I think what I found in the, you know, in the Midwest, we use a lot of that style of hunting is you know playing it safe the first few days you can learn a lot those first couple sits those first two or three sits in a stand and you know you think you know where the deer are funneling out of a lot but then you know if you were to get down somewhere and get a little bit further off that crossing where those deer are coming to you know 
you get a way better lay of the land and go, oh, I may go try that tree tomorrow or go, you know, maybe try that setup, you know, midday and go have a stand hung there for when the wind switches back right. Um, so, you know, that it can it can teach you a lot playing it safe. But, you know, it, there, there does come a point where it's like you're getting a little bit late. You've been there for five or six days. It's like, how long can you continue to do this? Yeah. Um, and you got to push in a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I would probably, you know, like I said, play it safe to start off with and then, you know, gradually creep in if you can. Yeah. High risk, high reward. That's right. Here's kind of a natural next step scenario then if we if we say we're kind of kind of play it a little bit safer in the beginning right so let's imagine it's it's that hunt and we're a little bit off of the the best stuff we're still in some pretty good areas though and you see a shooter buck cruising about 100 yards out and like i said it's like early-ish november give or take somewhere in that window he's 100 yards away but if he continues on his current path about another 100 yards he will eventually hit your win. So my question is to you, would you aggressively call to him to try to get him to come your way? Would you be worried that he's kind of heading into your general wind direction? Uh, does, does any of that pass through your mind? Do you not call at all? What's your, what's your move in that situation? Mm. Trying to think, think through this. Um, that's a tough call. You know, if, if you, uh, I may try to rattle and grunt a little bit, you know, just to see if that doesn't switch him, you know, trying to, to, to just to turn his direction. Um, that, that probably would be what I would likely to do is, is, is to call, maybe not call too aggressively. I may try to snort wheeze, um, to see if that doesn't turn his head. Um, but that's, that's tough. I, I I don't know. I mean, I would I would do I would do at least the minimum of what I could control to try to stop him and just see if that doesn't doesn't change his direction at all, so he doesn't hit my wind. I would try that. I don't know if I would call too aggressively, just because I don't want him to be spooked from that on top of the wind. Um, you know, thinking it's you know pressure. Um, so. I, w- I, w- I would try the minimum of at least trying to lightly call. Yeah. So when I was like 16, 17 years old, and if I saw a buck out of range, I would you know throw a grunt at him, and then he'd stop, and then he'd keep walking. Then I'd grunt twice at him. He'd stop and look, and then he'd keep walking, and then I'd like grunt louder at him, and then he'd keep walking, and then I'd like snort wheeze at him, and then he'd run away, right? Right. <laughs> um, what? Yeah, I think that's what I worry about, too. You know, that time of year can be, like you said, high risk, high reward, but you know, I just try not to educate them any more than what I have to. Um, so I, I, I'd like to think I wouldn't be overly aggressive with that, but, um, yeah, so like, you know, what's, because there's all, there's always tomorrow. Yeah. So what's your, I guess what I'm wondering is what's the, um, like what's the cutoff mark? Like when do you say, all right, he's just not into it. Like, will you try a couple grunts or a couple things? And then if he still ignores that, then you say, all right, well, it's just not happening. Or how do you know when enough is enough? Yeah, I think just reading the deer's body language, you know, as best I can, um, you know, if he maybe stops, you know, to a couple of grunts, uh, may try to, you know, lightly rattle, might snort wheeze one time. Um, and if, you know, if the deer doesn't, doesn't react or, you know, maybe stops just for a brief second, and keeps on going, then, you know, I, I'll, I'll call it off. I won't try to get any louder, won't continue to do it. 
And if he hits my win, he hits my win. You know, that's, that's just, that's, uh, that's part of it. But I, I definitely don't want to try to spook him any more than what I have to in hopes of, you know, trying to maybe close him out later in the season or the next day, or if I have a few days, um, you know, our hope that maybe he will somehow not hit my win is as bad as I think he will. You know, maybe he's got his back to me where he, uh, where he maybe won't is, is not paying attention. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. So here's another kind of spotting a buck off in the distance situation. Let's say... Same kind of deal. You spot a shooter buck, but instead of him cruising, 
let's say he's locked on a doe and it's the afternoon and you can see that this doe is very slowly kind of heading off in the direction of a food source. They're in the bedding area still, but she's kind of doing that thing where she moves off five, 10 yards. He's standing behind her. Then he walks up, stands right next to her, and then she moves off, and they, they're just slowly doing this. You're sitting yep. you know, 100 yards, 150 yards away, kind of back behind him, watching them slowly get further and further away from you. But they're moving slow. Right. So right. in that situation, would you, yep. would you ever try to call that buck and try to get him over to you? Would you slip out of your stand and try to move and like get ahead of them or anything? Or would you just say, ah, I'm just going to stick it out where I am and and hope that something crazy happens and they swing by or a different buck comes through or, or something else. I might try to throw in a couple light grunts. I might even try to snort wheeze, um, especially if it's here on our place in Georgia. Uh, but that would probably be the bare minimum. Um, you know, I would try to just anticipate maybe for that next day or next few days. Um, I, I wouldn't try to get down and and try to get ahead of them. Um, I, you know, I, I may try to do that maybe somewhere else, but, um, you know, maybe like in Montana or, or Nebraska, you know, you, you may try to do that, but I'd still try to play it as safe as I could. Cause I, I think, you know, where I've, I've messed up before in Montana is getting down out of the tree to try to get closer. I've ended up really, you know, blowing some fields out and it, and it really costed me and it may take these deer sometimes a week or two to really move back in and get comfortable again. Um, so I've, I've learned that the hard way, you know, in some of these places. Um, so I'd say, you know, at, at least the first time, like if it doesn't work, maybe after a couple of days and you can't get any closer then maybe you do try the ground approach. But, um, I'd say to start off with, you know, better safe. Yeah. What was your, you mentioned like, you know, waiting till the next day and then adjusting, what would your adjustment be for that next day? Would you just try to move in right to where you saw them again and hope they come back or what, what's your plan? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe trying, maybe hoping that that doe may take him, um, you know, maybe closer to us that next day. Um, you know, like that, that time of year, a lot of these deer get out there in that alfalfa and you're very limited on what you can do as far as movement. Uh, of where you can, you know, move some of these tree stands, you know, you may be able to move sometimes a ground blind closer to where these deer, you know, were maybe the day before. Um, and that may be able to help you a little bit for, for scent and trying to keep that, keep that, uh, keep that, you know, scent away from those deer as much as possible. So, um, you know, so that, that would be what I would probably try to do is, uh, you know, just, just try to wait it out and hopefully he, ends up making a mistake a day or two later. Okay. Now would this, uh, I want to see if, if your answer would change at all. If we were to shift a couple things, let's, let's change that sighting from an afternoon sighting to instead being a morning sighting. And now you see the buck locked on a doe, but now they're bedded down. They're bedded together. Yep. It's the morning. They're in a grassy, grassy, brushy kind of thicket. What, what do you do in that scenario? Does that, would that change your mind in any kind of way? Or are you still approaching it the same way? Um, so that, that he's, he's bedded down with the dough. He's locked down with the dough is what yep. you're saying. Yep. It's the morning. They're bedded down. It's like 10 AM. They're bedded down together. They're a hundred yards away from you. You see them. They're not going anywhere. What do you do? Oh man. 
I just, I don't think if they're bedded down and I'm in a tree, you know, I, I don't think there's anything I, I could do even to, to call to them. Um, I think I'd be very limited on, on what I could do in that scenario. I think you still, you know, you'd have to sit it out and wait. I just find it, at least in my experience, you know, you and others may be different, but, you know, getting down on a, on a deer like that, you know, if a whitetail does stand up, they're not going to give you a whole lot of time to react, you know, get your bow drawn. Um, and then I'm just worried about messing it up for the remainder of the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And because, you know, in my situation, you've got a camera guy with you most of the time too. Um, you know, when you have two people trying to stalk and get closer, it, it's even that much more difficult. So, um, you know, there, there may be some, some situation where you can try and, and close the distance and maybe try to get in another tree, but, um, you know, that's, that's tough. Yeah. That's a, it's a doozy. That's for sure. Let's, let's uh, pivot to a slightly different, uh, situation here now let's let's again say that you're sharing hunting camp with some friends it's the rut you're somewhere in the midwest you know i don't know we'll say maybe it's illinois or indiana something like that and you're all out there for a week together and you just cannot buy a shooter buck sighting like you're hunting great looking stuff but nothing is panning out for you but one of your buddies has kind of had a little zone that he's been focusing on and it's been crazy over there He's, he's been in big deer every single day, different bucks coming through. And on day five of your seven day hunt, he kills one, he tags out, he's out of there. You've got one or two days left. Would you consider going into his spot that was on fire, but where he also just killed a deer and tracked a deer and did all that stuff? Or would you stick to your own plan and and zone that you've been focusing on up to this point? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, this may not be the right answer. Maybe there is no right answer, but I've always been the kind of guy, if I have time, you know, invested into a certain spot, you know, maybe I, you know, won't be as willing just to pick up and move. You know, I, I, I get so familiar and comfortable with my surroundings, even if, you know, maybe a, a buck hasn't shown up, you know, quite yet. I always will sit it out until the very, very, you know, last minute, you know, even if we're unsuccessful, um, you know, I, I like, you know, just going in somewhere where I'm, I'm more familiar, uh, you know, than picking up and moving to a different location. Uh, you know, but sometimes you have to, and, 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 you know, if, if, in that scenario, you know, maybe I might try to move in there, um, and, and, you know, try my luck somewhere else, but I've always found it for me. I just, I, I try to really stick it out with the game plan that I've set out for myself. Um, and maybe that, and it doesn't always work out. You know, that's just part of the, unfortunately, part of the, the, the risk you take is you may be unsuccessful, but I've always found that maybe, the, you know, the longer I stick it out and try to exploit all options on the current location I'm in, it usually ends up paying off. Yeah, I, I battle with this every year during the rut. Like just last year is a perfect example of this. I was, I found just a dynamite rut spot. It was, it was like everything all stacked up. It was downwind of a great doe bedding area. It was a like a hub of two different pinch points that came together and there was a pond there and I had food up on the rises above me. It was just, it just screamed amazing. And right. And then it just wasn't, uh, there was younger bucks and deers kind of deer slowly rolling through here and there, but it was not what I was thinking it would be. The big ones never showed up and I kept battling. I'd sit there like midday on these all day sits and say, okay, you, 
you, you could trust the place and just believe that eventually the good one has to come through because it's such a good spot. Or you could go chase, you know, you could go try to find where the hot action is right now. And, and I went back and forth a thousand times and I, I must have lost three or four years off my long-term life expectancy because how much I stressed about it. <laughs> and, and I never figured it out. I kind of did, did a little bit of both and, and it never worked. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, yeah. it's a tough one. Yeah, it is tough, you know, and, 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 and like, I'm sure there are situations where maybe the hunting is really not as good for me. And like, I'd, I'd want to go up there and try something different, you know, where my buddy was just successful, maybe tagged on a, on a really nice deer. I just, I don't really know why it's just, you know, you, you have to kind of go in somewhere and learn that, that place all over again. Um, and if I feel like there are some deer in the area where I'm currently at, you know, I like kind of sticking it out and seeing it through the end, um, you know, but it doesn't always pay off. You know, there are many times, probably more often that it, it doesn't. So uh, it just, you know, how stubborn can you be? Yeah. Does, does that, does that, what am I trying to say here? Does that ever change in any way on the very last day of a hunt? Like, do you do you have a situation or other examples where in the past you've you've ran a game plan all the way to the end, and then you get to that last day and you get a wild hair, or you say, you know what, I just gotta try something new, or I just gotta do the crazy thing, or I just gotta try X. Do you ever have that happen? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had that happen, and I've I've had it, you know, and, and just to be honest, I've had it not work out more so than. You know, maybe I have had it work, but, you know, the, but that's, I think that's to be expected. Um, you know, and, in, in, in Nebraska in particular, I re- remember a hunt two years ago, we were there for 13 days, um, and very limited trees, very limited place. You could put ladder stands or a hang on. Um, so I was, I was kind of having to move my redneck blind, you know, up and like just around, you know, different points of the field where these deer were coming. Well, I was trying not to get too close to where there were two or three trails um, that this, he was a drop tie and eight pointer and you know, where this deer was going, it was, it was a really pretty deer, maybe 145, 150 inch deer. Um, never had killed a deer with a drop tie. So I thought, man, this would be really cool. But you know, I, I said, man, we're on day 13. Like we gotta, we gotta kind of go all in and get close to this spot. But I knew, you know, we're going to have a good chance to go back maybe the middle of October so if you're going to try something like this now, you know, maybe, maybe now's the time to do it. Um, so, you know, we, we have that mobile redneck, put it on a trailer and I got within maybe 50, 60 yards of, uh, of where these deer were going. And there were a lot of deer coming down these two or three trails and I actually saw him coming. It was not him that actually got spooked. It was really the deer that were in front of him, just kind of not liking the blind. And even though you do have an enclosed redneck, you know, you still have scent, you know, when you have to open up that front window, there's still some scent that can, that can leak out. Um, and they're seeing you for the first time, you know, you've played it safe this long, but you know, this, this is, a uh, this is new for them. So, you know, there were some deer that, that got the better of us on that one and, um, it didn't work. Um, so that's, but that's just kind of, like I said, you know, part of it. And, and, you know, I've, maybe had one instance in Montana where we kind of went all out. There's a group of trees in the middle of alfalfa and all, all week long, we were, uh, we were not, not going in there because deer were on either side 
of this alfalfa. And we knew if we went in there and got in that, got in that single row of trees, we were going to blow some deer. There were no if and buts about it. Uh, but it was the next to last day of the hunt. Decided to go in there and hang a ladder uh, mid-morning. And another problem with that was deer were bedded out there in that alfalfa too. And that was really the main problem why we didn't put a, put a tree stand or anything in there. Um, but we went in there at 10 o'clock put up a ladder stand, blew some deer out of there. It actually ended up paying off. Um, you know, the deer actually, when the wind started to die down late in the evening, um, you know, he, uh, the wind really wasn't blowing hard one direction. So it ended up working out, but you couldn't have guessed that beforehand. Uh, it was kind of just something that, that just happened, you know, and, and I think a lot of deer hunting too requires a ton of luck that has to go your way. Oh man. So true. You just got to do enough things right enough of the time to finally catch that lucky break to coincide with it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you can overthink it. I mean, that's kind of what we were doing all week. I was like, man, I wish we had tried that earlier in the week, but you know, when you look at it from up top and you see, you know, 20 head of deer bedded, I'm like, man, what can you really go in there and do without blowing everything out? And we we did. I'd I'd probably say, you know, 50, 60% of that field we, we blew out. Um, but you know, when we hung that stand up at 10 o'clock, we sat in there all day and shot that deer, maybe with 10 minutes left to go, um, of daylight, uh, you know, for, for camera. So, um, that's, it ended up working out, but not all the time it does. Yeah. Sometimes you gotta give it a shot. You gotta risk it. Yeah. All right. Here's one last kind of tough rut scenario that kind of rears his ugly head every few years and we all bemoan it. But let's say it's like the second week of November and yep. you're on your rut trip to wherever it is this, this year on that date. We'll say yep. probably Kansas, Iowa, somewhere in the Midwest sure. again. Beautiful time of year, right? Should be, should be top notch, but your weather conditions for that week are hot. It's like yeah. 70s and lousy and you're miserable out there. How does your hunting strategy change at all? for that time of year or does it change at all given the warm weather or do you stick to your usual rut kind of tactics? Mm, man, I actually, I mean, I, I feel like I experience a lot out there in Kansas and I try to usually hunt that last week of October, first week of November in Kansas every year. Um, if you know, if we're not somewhere else, but man, I've seen it happen out there as well. I mean, you can, I still wouldn't, be opposed to sitting all day, even in really hot conditions. Uh, you just kind of never know. That can be a magical time, really, no matter what the weather, um, you know, the moon as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I try not to let it change my strategy up too much because, you know, I've, I've heard plenty of stories from people that hunt around that, around that area. Um, you know, don't let the weather dictate too much Mm -hmm. that time of year. It's, it's not, it's not what it was two or three weeks prior. Um, and you want to be in a tree as much as possible. You know, there's like, there's a window usually anywhere from that first week of uh, really that last week of October, Halloween, those first couple of weeks of November, I throw every other strategy I've had up until then from September and October kind of out the window. Um, because you know, yeah, you expect the unexpected that time. Um, and that goes with any weather condition. You know, there've been so many deer that don't show up on my camera. Uh, you know, when I'm out there in a tree, even when it's hot, cold, um, that, that I wouldn't have seen if I wasn't out there 
and then you kind of adjust and your your strategy from there. So I would say, I would say I try to stick it out. You know, the rut's just one of those times a year you can't can't think about it too much. You just got to be out there. Yeah. And what about like what's your favorite? If you had to kind of describe your favorite rut type of setups, uh, I mean, is it is it the typical stuff that we all hunt, or do you have something a little off the beaten path that you tend to like to do during that time of year? Paint me a picture of what a what a rut hunt set might look like for you. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's pretty. You know, I, I am trying to. I am usually in Kansas. You know, mostly that time of year, but anything where I can see, you know, whether it be you know standing beans, you know, that time of year in Kansas, um, you know, seeing deer out there, uh, you know, during the rut, but then also being able to see. Um, you know, different trails and stuff too, where if I get eyes on a deer, you know, I can maybe try to turn it with a grunt or a rattle, um, you know, but having as much, having as much of a visual uh, that time of year for, and, and to cover as much ground, I feel like is really critical. Um, I, I like to, I like to be able to see, uh, and, you know, just for, for deer out there, I mean, I've, had plenty of times, you know, does not always a monster, but you, you get a glimpse of a deer that's 400, 500 yards out there. You start rattling that deer, a deer will turn and come. Um, so I, I, I like being able to see as much, much as possible and, and to maybe stay on a heavy trail. Yeah. What's your, what's your rattling, your typical rattling sequence look like during the rut? Uh, I'm just kind of curious, like how long, how, you know, is it, is it just one nonstop thing? Is it stop, start, stop, start? What's that look like? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I try to do it, you know, maybe every 30 to 45 minutes. And so a rattling sequence may go for, I don't know, maybe, maybe sometimes even 45 seconds to a minute. Um, and, and, and then I'll try to lay off, uh, you know, for, like I said, 30, 45 minutes, unless I, you know, have a, a visual of a, of a deer that, you know, I'm interested in trying to get turned around to come our way. Um, try not to overdo it. I don't know if you if, if you can overdo it that time of year, but um, I try to give it as that's kind of my gap time in between rattling. Yeah. Okay. All right, man. You have made it through the main section of the gauntlet, but we've got this last set of rapid fire questions. Okay. So I've got five, six questions here. I'm going to ask you real quick, one after the other, and I'm just looking for like a one word answer or, or as quick of an answer as you can give me on these. And we'll just rattle through real fast. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. These are a little controversial, Tyler. So you might get some haters coming off of these. So be <laughs> oh, ready. <shoot. laughs> well, pl- plenty of those anyway. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> you and me both, buddy. So here, here we go. Does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Yes. Would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes. If you could only have one of these tools for the rest of your hunts, for the rest of your life, would you choose rattling antlers or a grunt tube? Grunt tube. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? <laughs> Expandable. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, there are the haters. Are yeah, there's the haters. Um should you stop a walking buck with some kind of sound before shooting with your bow? Yes or no? Oh, shoot. Um, yes. Which state has better deer hunters, Georgia or Mississippi? Oh, boy. 
Uh, both. <laughs> yeah, safe, safe answer. All right, so here's the last one. This one's not quite as rapid fire, but let's imagine that I rule the world. I have control over all hunting scenarios, situations, license allocation, yada, yada, yada. And here's the deal. I am going to take away your right to hunt for the next 20 years. You can't hunt ever again for 20 years, Tyler, unless, unless you kill a mature buck in one day this season. I'm going to let you pick the date. So pick the date on the calendar you want for this one hunt. And then you have to pick the one specific location. So tell me what state, tell me what the situation is, what your setup is. Paint me the picture of what day and what your setup is to kill this one mature buck you need to kill to save the next 20 years of hunting. Wow. That, that's, that's tough. So save 20 years yeah. of hunting to pick one spot. Um, uh, I would say, you know, probably home. Just because I'm so familiar with this place and have kind of grown up on it, um, I really feel like even though there, you know, the people would argue that maybe other places would be easier, I feel like I could have a good chance at a, at a mature deer here. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just so familiar with this property, so I would say that, you know, maybe early season, um, you know, finding a spot like in the woods, kind of like what I had last year with with, with my deer hunting somewhere near oaks, pin oaks, water oaks, uh, sawtooths, um, you know, so that would be, that would probably be my ideal setup is somewhere early season, September. Um, let's just say for, you know, we, we've been, we've been fortunate here to have a lot of mature deer still on a pattern, uh, early season. So I would say early season is really my favorite time. So Let's just say September 10th. I'll play the odds and and hopefully um, hopefully be able to get a mature buck down. But early season, uh, early season in Georgia. I like probably it. hunting in the woods. I like it. You, you bucked the usual trend. Most people pick like the first week of November in the Midwest. So I like that you uh, you're willing to risk it in Georgia early season. That takes that takes some gonads. Yeah. I like it. I, I think I think the reason why is just, you know, other places, while it can be really good, it can be really unpredictable. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it, and it may not pay off for me, but you know, I've always found I like early season more than I do maybe the end of October, first of November. While it can be fun, um, you know, deer are a little bit more patternable for us that early part. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that early season too. Something Something pretty special about the that bed to feed pattern they can still be on and they can still be visible and you can figure them out and it's fun. It's a really good time. It is. It is. And we're we're getting close to it too. I know. So exciting stuff. It sure is. And uh you made it through. You've completed the gauntlet. So uh nice. thanks. Thanks for, for bearing with me on this and, and taking a trip down a few of these wild storylines. No, it was fun. Mark, it's been a been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Oh yeah, man, right back at you. I, I appreciate you taking the time. And and before you go, can you just fill folks in on you know where they can catch the latest with the new season of of road trips and anything else you guys have got coming out that people should be keeping tabs on? How can they follow you throughout the year? All that stuff. Yeah, so I, I have my own Instagram, Facebook, Tyler Jordan. Pretty easy to find. Realtree Road Trips um, is the digital show that we're, we're hosting. Uh, myself, Brian Brown, who's a producer, he'll be hunting on camera. And then we have a new addition, Michael Pitts, 
uh, will also be joining us. Uh, he'll be out there in Nebraska for that first week of bow season. Chipper Jones will be out there with us. Um, we're going to do some semi-live hunts from out there. So excited to kind of going to go the Bill Winkie model. And, uh, you know, when we have hunts, we're going to try to get them uploaded that night, maybe nice. late in the night. But we're going to have uh, guys working hard trying to get that stuff edited and, and content out there. So um, excited. Can't wait to get the season going. And then after Nebraska, we're going to be in Georgia. Uh, got a couple of nice ones here. Maybe not quite as big as last year, but <laughs> – some nice deer nonetheless and uh looking forward to hunting with the family so uh ready to kick off the 22 season can't wait awesome well i'm looking forward to following along tyler keep up the great work and uh good luck this year awesome martin you too all right and that's a wrap thank you for joining me appreciate you make sure you're following along with wired hunt on instagram i'm even on tiktok now i don't like tiktok not a fan but uh i'm there that's another story though so uh Follow me on TikTok. Follow me on Wired to Hunt's Instagram account, Facebook, the Wired to Hunt Weekly newsletter. Check it all out. Have a great day. Good luck with your summer scouting or your early season hunts, whatever you're up to right now. Get after it. Have fun and stay Wired to Hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.